invite you to uh, open up your Bibles and take them to Luke's Gospel and turn to chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. If you're using a pew Bible that's there for you in the front or the seat back of the pew there, flip over to the right side of it and find page number 13. They, they start numbering from the Old Testament. When they start the New Testament, they start renumbering again. I don't know why, but that's what they do. So page 13 on the right side if you're using a pew Bible. But we're in Luke chapter 15, and we're going to be starting in verse 11 and reading down to verse 24 this morning. I want to bring you a message this morning that I've entitled, The Extravagant Love of the Father. The extravagant love of the Father. And I'll have to confess to you right away that this will be extravagant love of the Father A, and we will go more in depth into it next week. Because as I was preparing and, and getting into this text, I was really looking forward to being into this portion of Scripture. Because it's in this passage that we get a glimpse of the heart of Almighty God towards lost and repentant sinners. This is where God's heart starts to go on full display for us to look at and and marvel at. In fact, I would argue that over this week and into the next, we're going to sort of be on this pinnacle or this high point in which we get to view God's love and mercy towards repentant sinners. Over and above all the other gods of this world that have ever been fashioned in the minds of sinful men, this shows us that the God of the Bible is the God that we worship is not hostile or indifferent to the salvation of the lost, but that he actually rejoices and he delights in displaying his mercy and love to repentant sinners. And this is exactly what Jesus is trying to teach these scribes and these Pharisees since the beginning of chapter 15 when they came to him and they accused him of receiving and eating with sinners. We saw that in verse 2 of Luke 15. In their mind, God would never be actively looking for and accepting tax collectors and sinners. They claimed to know God. They acted like they walked with him. They claim to be the authority on God to the rest of Israel, and they thought that they knew God's heart in who he would and would not save. But the reality is, is that they were the same as the generations that came before them, of whom Isaiah described in Isaiah twenty nine thirteen. It says, they drew near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they removed their hearts far from me. They were whitewashed tombs. They were full of dead men's bones, looking good on the outside, but lacking any true love and devotion to God on the inside. And with that, they had no understanding, no comprehension as to the true saving nature of God. And so through a series of three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus completely obliterates their view of God's heart. And he shows them their devastating ignorance of what actually causes God to rejoice. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've been working our way through this third parable, the parable of the prodigal son, which is one of the most vivid and colorful pictures of God's love and redemption for the lost in all of Scripture. So far, we've begun to look at this younger of the two sons. 
who demands to get his inheritance from his father, which would have been the equivalence of him saying to his father, I wish you were dead so that I could have my money. And then the son took that inheritance, he recklessly spent it on a debauched lifestyle to even include prostitutes in a pagan land, which would have been an unconscionable thing for a young Jewish lad to do. But then something comes upon the son in which he had never planned for, and that was a severe famine had come upon the land. The son, who has now spent all of his money on partying and carousing and loose living, it says, he finds himself becoming a beggar, and eating is essentially pig slop. Of all the sinners that Jesus ever depicted, this is one of the most egregious, the most excessive, and the most appalling illustrated in a parable. Now we can imagine, had Jesus ended the parable right there and just stopped, the Jews would have been saying something like, well, this is why you never disrespect your father. Or, this is why you don't associate with the unclean. You reap what you sow. But thanks be to God that this is not where Jesus ends this parable. And so we want to pick up from there this morning, from verse 16 on, and see what else God would have us to learn from this rich and beautiful parable. If you're there with me in Luke chapter 15, I want to invite you to stand with me, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's Word. We'll read from verse 11 to 24 this morning. Luke chapter 15, beginning In verse 11, God's inspired, inerrant, and holy word says this. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And felt compassion for him. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat. And celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Let's pray. 
Father, we just pray that you would come and meet us here with us today and speak to us through your holy word. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would open our ears to hear your truth and understand it and act upon it for your glory. Help us this, at this time to be one of renewal within our inward persons so that we might be more confirmed, confirm, conformed rather, into the image of your precious and only begotten Son. Bless this time, Lord, for our good and for your glory. It's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, that was A.W. Tozer who once wrote, quote, The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or based as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most foreboding fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or what he may do, but what he is deep in his heart that he conceives God to be like. In other words, what A.W. Tozer was saying is very simply an expansion of an old maxim that in the mind of man, ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. Or to say it another way, what you believe to be as reality in your life will have a direct result in how you behave and how you act. And the actions that you take on a day-to-day basis are rooted and grounded deep within your mind. They just don't come out of thin air. What you perceive as truth will govern and control your life. What you perceive as beauty will determine how you dress and how much makeup you wear and how you order your surroundings. What you perceive as pleasurable will dictate what you spend your time on and what you pursue. What you understand to be right and good will determine how you treat your family and how you treat others around you, what you will tolerate and what you will not. And what you understand to be valuable and important is what will determine what you spend your time, money, and energy on in your life. Every action Every decision that you make is influenced by what you believe and the convictions that you have deep within your mind. Solomon put it like this in Proverbs 23, 7. He said, For as a man thinks within himself, so he is. In other words, the sum and the substance of your life, the reality of who you truly are, is that which with you are, within, rather, your own mind. And nothing could be more important in your Christian life than for you to have a right, a pure, and truthful understanding in your mind of who the living God really is. What you think about God 
has immense ramifications on your worship of Him. And it directly affects every aspect of your life. As your mind goes, so goes your life. And that's certainly true of our prodigal son in our text this morning. A low view of the Father has led to low living. You can't really get much lower than being flat broke in a pagan land with no friends, no one to help you while you're sitting there eating pig slop with the pigs. But that's all about to change. Because when the son had conceived in his mind about his father, is about to be radically and dramatically changed. He's going to have a paradigm shift in his mind about who his father really is. And what we're going to see is how the process of a restored relationship with his father takes place. And that's what is absolutely necessary is two things, repentance and faith. And that begins, first of all, in verse 17, with a sober perception of sin. A sober perception of sin. Look at verse 17 with me in your text. It says this, But when he came to his senses, in other words, he realizes what he has come to. He he sees that he's now under conviction. He knows what he has become. He meditates on where he is from and what he has come to. It's been said that a man must come to himself before he can come to God. And that's literally what the start of true repentance comes from. It's when you seriously and when you soberly assess your true spiritual condition. But he goes on in verse 17 by saying this. He said, how many... Of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here in hunger. So let me give you a little background about the social structure in first century Israel. You basically had the people with money. You had the landowners. And they would in turn rent a little section of their land to tenant farmers who actually worked the land and harvested the crops. We see that even today as landowners today will lease their land to a farmer and they will split the proceeds. But then you would have maybe some shop owners, some craftsmen of various skills and those sorts of things. Below that, you would have servants. Servants were the people you would hire and they would actually live with you. They were part of your family And and you would feed them and house them, and they would do all sorts of jobs around the house. They might feed children or change diapers or clean house and cook meals and all those sorts of things. And some of you ladies are probably saying to yourself, that sounds glorious, right? But even below that, there, there would have been what is called hired men. These were the day laborers who would come in and fill in the gap to what the servants could not get done, and they were typically menial tasks like grinding wheat, harvesting crops, doing the wash, and those sorts of things. They are the people who just hung around looking to get hired for the day, like the parable in Matthew chapter 20, where Jesus talks about the man who had a harvest, and he went into town looking for people at 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. and 12 and then 3, trying to find people that would come and work 
for the day. And back in Leviticus 19, 13, it says that when you hire a day laborer, you have to pay him at the end of the day. You can't keep his wages overnight because it's, he sets his heart on getting that money and that income. That's all he has. He's got to feed his family, and so he works one day at a time. This is how he ekes out his existence. But I want you to look at what the son comes to realize about the father. This is fascinating. He says this, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? He comes to understand that his father, who is very wealthy, wealthy enough to even divide his estate with this prodigal son and still have a banquet hall to celebrate in his home. He still has servants. He still has a fattened calf to celebrate his return. So he's very wealthy. But his father gives to those who are on the bottom of the social ladder, who are just trying to make it day by day. It says that he gives them more than enough bread. He doesn't just pay them. He pays them lavishly. If you were a day laborer, this is the guy that you'd want to work for. And so what does this tell us about our Heavenly Father? This is a parable, right? An earthly story to teach us a heavenly spiritual reality. What does this teach us about our Heavenly Father? It teaches us that He's generous. It teaches us and tells us that He's merciful. It teaches us and tells us that he's kind. It teaches us that the heart of God is full of compassion. Do you think of God this way, beloved? Do you think of him as being generous to you in the provisions that he's given to you? Or do you find yourself grumbling and complaining, always desiring and eagering for more? Do you frequently and regularly thank him for his mercies and how they are new every day? Have you stopped thanking the Lord for his kindness to you and revealing his son to you? Have you ever stopped to think that the gospel that has come into your ears in which you believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ that has come to so many more people, a multitude in this world, and yet when they hear it, they never believe it, they never accept it as truth, and yet how compassionate has your Heavenly Father been to you to reveal Himself to you? This is an amazing thing. Our God is good and generous and merciful. He lavishly gives more than enough. And so, as this prodigal, he begins to look upon his spiritual condition. He remembers the character of his father. As he feels the pain of his hunger and his aching belly, he comes up with a plan of reconciliation. And it begins with a contrite admission that he has sinned. A contrite admission of sin. Look in verse 18 with me when it says, I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Now, some commentators, they differ at this point. And they say, you know what? This prodigal's repentance is no way genuine. 
They say this is, this is rehearsed repentance and that his belly is what is driving him to his father. It's, it's shallow, it's a superficial confession because he's playing it out in his mind ahead of time. But notice that the son doesn't come to the conclusion that his behavior was simply unwise. He doesn't just say, it's just an error on my part. He doesn't say, whoops, that was a faux pas, dad. But he specifically sees what he has done as sin. But not only just a little sin, the Greek phrase here suggests that his sins pile up as high as heaven. He's got a mountain of sin that needs to be dealt with. And beloved, i got to confess to you, as I read devotionals every day, and you think, I've got this mastered. That is not something I have to struggle with. And I read a devotion on meekness, and I have to say, Lord, help me to be meek. I've got a mountain-high pile of sin. This prodigal has a mountain-high pile of sin that needs to be dealt with. And the Hebrews would often substitute the word heaven for God because they didn't want to be accused of blasphemy. But he knows ultimately who it is he is offended. It's similar to Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4, when David recognized his mountain-high pile of sin, and he says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so he realizes that there is no one to turn to except the Father in whom he has dishonored. He has nothing to bring to him. He's got nothing to offer him. And he's going to cast himself upon his father based on his goodness and his mercy and his grace. He's got nothing to offer his father for restitution except the sin that made it necessary in the first place. This is what Augustus' top lady tried to capture in his hymn, Rock of Ages, when he wrote, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. We have nothing to bring to God except the sin that made the death of his son possible and necessary. And then in verse 19, we see a humble request for God's grace. A humble request for God's grace. In verse 19, look at it there with me. He says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Now, this is the only statement in the parable in which probably both of these sons would wholeheartedly agree. This son realizes his unworthiness before his father. He knows he can make no claims. He knows he has no rights. He sees his own unworthiness of being received as a family member, and he is prepared to be at the lowest of the low of the social ladder and live a life of servitude if necessary. This is a sinner in true repentance. 
He comes to desperation, and he realizes that he's on the path to death. He wants reconciliation. He's willing to confess that his sins are as high as heaven. He knows he has no rights, no privileges. He can lay claim to nothing. He wants reconciliation at any cost, even if it costs him a life of hard labor. This is real repentance. And then lastly, in verse 20, we see him have a confidence in God's mercy. A confidence in in God's mercy. Verse 20, it says, So he got up and came to his father. Now notice here that his repentance was not just a change of mind about his sin. That is not what repentance is. Contrary to the likes of theologians like Zane Hodges or Charles Ryrie even, who contend that repentance is simply a change of mind of your sin. That's not it at all. But it is more than just an intellectual acknowledgement of what he had done. It was Louis Burkhoff, who had written in his systematic theology about repentance, and he says, quote, that it is a change of purpose, an inward turning away from sin, and a disposition to seek pardoning and cleansing. True repentance will have not only a change of heart or a change of mind, but it will always result in a change of behavior. And coupled along with repentance is an inseparable bond that is called faith. Faith in itself is always looking up to the Father. It is seeing beyond the visible and looking to the invisible. It is peering beyond the temporal and looking to the eternal. Faith is the upward vision of the believing soul, looking beyond the circumstances of your life, looking beyond the world that's spinning around you, and looking to the Lord himself who stands behind those events and he presides over them for his glory. That's what faith is, looking up to your king who is seated on his throne and has you in the palm of his hand. That's what faith is. And the eyes of this, faith, this prodigal's faith are looking away from himself, looking away from the world and its enticements, and he is seeking to look to God to supply his every need. But this prodigal's going to the Father is Isaiah 55 in action. When it says this, and starting in verse 6, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. There are many of you that have been raised in a Christian home. There are many of you who have heard the gospel time and time again. There are many of you here this morning who are around a lot of Christian people, but you have not come fully to Jesus Christ. Why won't you come? Why will you not come to your Father who loves you, cares for you, and is ready to give you the kingdom gladly? But he could not have imagined, possibly, this prodigal, the reception that he would have had. 
It says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion for him and he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. Now, beloved, I don't want to diminish this text. I don't want to skim over a verse like this. And I have to be completely honest with you that if I tried to do so, I don't think it would benefit you and it would not benefit me. But I want, you to, I want to ask you this one question as we consider this verse and we start to dig into it deeper next week. I want you to truly meditate on this question for yourself this week, and that is this. Do you enjoy God? Do you enjoy God? You see, as I said earlier, ideas have consequences. And if you have this idea, or this little sense in the back of your mind, that God doesn't accept you, and that God is always disappointed in you, and God isn't for you, then you will never, ever, ever find yourself enjoying God. You will never find yourself delighting in Him. You will never enjoy sweet times of communion with Him. You will not long to learn about Him and know Him intimately through His Word. You will not long to be in prayer with your Heavenly Father. You will never find yourself delighting in Him if you think He's always disappointed in you. And yet we are going to see in our text that God has indeed accepted you. God does rejoice over you. When you come to faith and repentance, it causes God to run to you. It causes God to love you, delight in you, rejoice over you, have compassion for you, and kiss you. The infinite, almighty, all-wise, all-knowing, all-supreme, eternal, self-sustaining God who loved His Son from eternity past with the purest, immutable, and holiest of loves, loves you to such an extent that He sent His Son to die in your place, loves you fully, completely, and unchangeably, just as He does His own dear Son. And I wonder, Christian, do you believe that this morning? Do you honestly believe that? Do you delight in God? Because if you truly do, this will make all the difference in your life and in your enjoyment of God. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed, how happy is the man who takes refuge in Him. Do you enjoy God? We'll pick up there next week when we come back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that it's here to instruct us and encourage us, strengthen us, correct us, reprove us. And Father, I just pray this morning, if anyone has a view of you that is not in line with what you have revealed in your scriptures, that they would dig deep into its treasures. 
that they would see the depth of their sinfulness, Lord, but that you would not leave them there, that they would look upon you and see your goodness and your holiness and your majesty. Father, what a wonder it is to think that you love us, that you care for us. You know the numbers of the hairs that are on our head. You know our lying down and our are waking up. And before there is even a word on our tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Father, just help us to delight in you. Help us to enjoy you and see you as beautiful and pleasurable and something we can treasure in our life. Father, we thank you for this time and this word. We just pray these things in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.